Suffering is always a unique experience. <laughs> That's why when you're suffering and you have well-meaning friends who give you advice, it doesn't work. People always overreach, right? They always read out of their suffering into yours. And have you ever been insulted by a friend who thinks they know and they've got like, oh, this is what you need? But the fact of the matter is suffering, especially profound suffering, deep suffering, is unique. A few weeks ago, I described to you the suffering of Mother Teresa. After the first two years of surrendering to God's call to her to go and serve the poorest of the poor on the streets of Calcutta, for the next 49 years, she entered into a dark night of the soul where God was profoundly absent from her. So she followed Christ into darkness. One of my favorite poems, Alfred Lord Tennyson in Memoriam, it's this great, there's a great section in it where he's talking about how a lot of people deny their doubts, but his friend that he's writing the poem for in Memoriam of his friend, Hallam, Hallam, he says, um, looked right into the darkness. And he talks about when the people of Israel are gathered around the mountain and God is in darkness. What do the people of Israel end up doing? In that moment, they end up making an idol because they can't see God. And sometimes darkness drives us into this place where God is so far away, we turn to many other things to become God for us. I told you a couple of weeks ago about my own suffering um, over the loss of our child and over the loss of a church. I've discovered um, over the past week or so a remarkable book by a man named Jerry Sitzer where he describes his suffering when a drunk driver caused a wreck that killed his wife and his mother and his daughter. For Sitzer, when that occurred, darkness just kind of closed in on him. Listen to how he describes it. I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into darkness A type of darkness from which I might never again emerge as a sane, normal, believing man. Uh, I told you several weeks ago about when I had a breakdown. There was a moment in that, I don't know if I told you this part, where I, I can still distinctly remember I'm in the shower and I feel as if I am an inch away from a catatonic state that I can never come out of. I knew that I was about to go into something that I had absolutely no control over and that I was powerless to redeem myself from it. There are three books in the Bible that center on suffering and and like Sitzer and like Mother Teresa and like my own suffering, each of these books, the book of Job, the book of Lamentations, the book of Ecclesiastes, they're all three different. Every suffering is unique. They all deal with this kind of suffering that St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. Here's how he describes it. He says it's when your soul feels itself to be perishing and melting away. And in the presence and sight of its miseries in a cruel spiritual death, even as if it had been swallowed by a beast and felt itself being devoured in the darkness of its belly, suffering such anguish as was endured by Jonah 
and the belly of that beast in the sea. I think at its heart, the dark night of the soul is such a profound suffering because there is a deep sensual experience, an experience of your senses in which God is absent. You can't see Him, you can't hear Him, you can't taste Him. All of the spiritual disciplines, prayer, worship, fasting, singing, confessing, all of them are like ash in your mouth. It's like the roof of your room has become brass and your prayers just bounce right off of it. In the book of Job, the darkness that Job descends into is after he's like Joseph Sitzer, hit by a catastrophe, right? In the very beginning of Job, everything's good and he's blessed. And then catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe. It's like, it's like trying to stand up and surf where the waves are just too much. They just keep rolling over him. And he experiences grief beyond measure. And right away, right in the very beginning of the book, he has this great profound confession of faith, doesn't he? He says, if naked I came from the room, naked I'll return. I'm going to trust in God. And then 41 chapters of anger and despair and screeching and accusation before he can ever get back to that moment again. See, the problem with a lot of us is that we read the beginning of Job and we read the end of Job and we don't sit with him in the ash heap for 41 chapters. And we think you just get there. Job rose up with faith and then he screamed for 41 chapters. The book of Ecclesiastes. It's often overlooked as a book of suffering, but it is no less serious of a suffering than Job. Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, his suffering is of an intellectual nature. As he begins to try to figure out if there's any meaning in life, And it destroys him every bit as much as Job's loss destroyed Job. Both of them face the specter of suicide. Both of them. Over and over, Kohelet verges on blasphemy when you read the book of Ecclesiastes. The suffering is so excruciating for neither Job nor Kohelet does activity, you know, lots and lots of doing things. For neither of them does this work. Does it pull them out? All the familiar compass points and orientation are gone. They're stripped away. When you look at Job and when you look at Kohelet and Ecclesiastes, you, you see people who are stripped and left naked and in pain and they are completely at a loss with how to fix it, how to get out of it, what to do. Everything they do fails. They don't know what to think about God anymore. You read Job, you read Ecclesiastes, they're saying the wildest things in the world. They don't know what to think. They don't know what to say. They don't even hardly know what to believe anymore. And what I like about the three books in the Bible dedicated to suffering is that none of them have recipes. Because every suffering is unique. I mean, think about it. Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, none of those books answer the question, why does evil occur? None of them say, here's how to get out of it. All they are are narratives, stories of three moments of suffering. All they do is paint the picture. Now that's interesting, isn't it? It really messes you up when you think the Bible is an encyclopedia where you can just look up when you're going through something and find God's promise for that moment, right? When you're going through suffering, sit and read Job. You know? 
I, I think what we need, I think, the, you know, what if a church on the day after 9-11 had just read Lamentations and the preachers had shut up? I mean, I, there are these moments in the Bible where we don't answer the question. We just sit in the ash heap. They don't give us quick and easy answers. And in all three books, Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, it's all this dark night of the soul stuff. It's all this Psalm 22 stuff that I preached on a few weeks ago. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms. Um, It's dangerous, okay? It's dangerous because it's a compression. It takes Job, it takes Ecclesiastes, it takes Lamentations, and it compresses them into one short paragraph. Now, the compression is dangerous because Asaph, the author of Psalm 73, is going through a dark night of the soul. But because he gives a short account of it, you think it might have been short and easy. (laughs) But just remember, it's a compression, okay? Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, you're reading that and you're thinking, is it a, look, you've got to ask the question. Is it a statement of faith? Is it a statement of irony? Is it an accusation or is it a question? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, right? Van, I mean, now it depends on what follows. Well, I'm going to tell you what follows is he's suffering. Now, this is what he was taught to believe from the moment he was born, right? This is Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who does not sin the counsel of the wicked or stand. You're blessed if you follow the way of the Lord, right? Psalm 2. You're blessed as a nation if you kiss the sun. Deuteronomy 28. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, God's going to hurt you. Surely God is good to the people who do what God tells them to do. Next verse. But... Right, that's what I was taught to believe. That's what I was brainwashed to believe. That's what I used to believe. That's what I've been told. But let me tell you what reality is. As for me, I mean, have you ever heard this right? Yeah, that's what you, but let me tell you about my, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Because I was envious of the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of those who are pure in heart. Is that what your Bible says? Of those who are of the Israelites? Of those following God? Is that what it says? No. Who's supposed to prosper in this book? The people who love God. But I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, that's not right. That's not Psalm 1. That's not Psalm 2. That's not the book of Deuteronomy. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But for me, let me tell you who I see getting the good life. The wicked. There are no pains in their death. I don't care what I've been taught at this point, right? There are no pains in their death. You tell me that the Christian life is the good life, but at the end of the day, Hugh Hefner's got got it nice. Or just pick your, right? I mean, just pick the person that is making it without God. But as for me, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. Their, their body is fat. Back in the day when there was lots of poverty, fat meant you had enough money to eat enough food to be fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. Look, the Bible says pride comes before a fall, but these guys, they wear pride like a necklace. They're proud of their pride. They're like showing it like bling. They don't care. It's not getting them in any trouble. In fact, it's getting them ahead. The garment of violence covers them. They don't even hide their violence. They wear it like a shirt. They're proud of their violence. Their eye bulges with fatness. Now, that, that's just weird for me. It's come, that's some Bernie Mac. Have you ever noticed Bernie Mac's? I don't know what that means. But apparently back in the day, you saw somebody with a bulging eye. You're like, whoa, I wish I could get some of that. No, what he's getting at is here. They, they've got so much to eat. I'm so poor. Even their eyes are sticking out, you know. The imaginations of their heart overflow. They don't control their imagination. You know that imagination when your enemy hurts you? You know, I won't tell her name, but one of my wife's um, favorite activities is uh, she's driving on the road and somebody cuts her off to do this to them. You know what she's doing? She's smushing their head. <laughs> she's not even in the room. I, I was had my back. Is she? No. You know how when you imagine in your heart what you would do, what you could do? They just let their heart, they just let their imagination go wherever they want it to go, wherever it takes them. They mock and and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue. These are the people that are, right, flourishing. Surely God is good to Israel, but let me tell you people who get the good life. They set their their tongues parade through the earth. Now, that's a cool image, isn't it? Like a tongue with some feet walking around there. In other words, they don't care who they say what to. They just blabber away this stuff. Therefore, ambiguity in this next phrase in the original Hebrew. um, Therefore, his people return to this place. Look, these people that know what they should do and shouldn't do, they return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? In other words, they say, we can do whatever we want. God either doesn't know or doesn't care because it's working for us. And they're drinking waters of abundance. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And then if you have a different translation than mine, you don't have this. But look, in Hebrew, originally written in Hebrew, verse 1, surely God is good to Israel. Verse 13, surely, it's the second time he uses that word. But this time it's different. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Have you ever been there? It's just not worth it. The price you have to pay to live the good life, to follow God, vain. It's been, I, I got into this game, God, because if I obey, I'll be blessed. Life will work for me. But now I've discovered everything I've done for you, God, has been in vain. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. Because I've been stricken all day long. I've been chastened. Look, I'm the one who's got the pure heart and I'm stricken. They don't. And they're drinking waters of abundance and their eyes are bulging out. I've been chastened every morning. Have you ever felt like that? (laughs) What's the deal here, God? Why me? Why not that cat? Now, that guy needs some of this stuff in his life that you've been giving me. 
Verse 15, uh, Asaph. I love this confession. It's so ironic. If I had said, I will speak this, I'll talk about this. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Look, he's ashamed to even tell people that he's doubting God. Because then he would lead others astray. And then it got recorded in the Bible and we're reading it and talking about it. (laughs) I mean, not only did he say it, but it made it into the book, you know. I mean, there were a lot of other prayers that didn't make it in that nobody ever heard, right? Prayers of desperation, prayed in secret. This guy just happened to have it snuck into the... Holy cow, how ironic. But, I mean, do you feel it? I mean, some of you have really struggled with doubt and suffering. How can you let people know that... On your best day, you're pretty sure Jesus is God. On your worst day, you're not even sure he existed. I mean, how do you say that when, you, when you, you know, you've been branded at work as a Christian? That's what he's saying. I can't talk about this. <laughs> Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. <laughs> it's interesting to me that Oh, I'm sorry, I've skipped verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. Look, he's saying, um, when I tried to figure it out, I couldn't. So what did he do? He surrendered. He trusted. He went to worship. And then all of a sudden his perspective shifted. It's like when um, you're watching a horror movie and the girl walks up to the door and you're like, you see Freddy Krueger, whoever's behind the door, you know, and you're like, no, no, no. You know, but from her perspective, it's like the camera lens just zoomed around and all of a sudden you saw behind the props. Then, but what I want to focus on is how did he, how did that transition happen? How did it happen for Job? How did it happen for Ecclesiastes? You see, it's Job chapter 2 through the end, and it's all of Ecclesiastes that are, that are skipped over in verses 16 and 17. I went to worship, and then I perceived, what, what's going on here? And I proposed to you what he did was he embraced the darkness. He walked into it. I want to show you the outcome and then I'm going to come back and talk more about the gap between his problem and how he kind of came out of it. But look, let's finish this up. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. He sees. He perceives. You know, earlier he saw the wicked, but now he perceives them. Right? There's been a shift in language. Now he understands that they are in danger. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. I'm going to talk about this again in a minute. I mean, part of the challenge of the dark night of the soul is that you sense God is not near. But here he's saying... I know that's not true. Even in the darkness, even in the silence, I am and continually with you. And sometimes that is only apprehended by faith. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Now, this is a huge shift. What was the thing that drove him into darkness? Jealousy over the prosperity of the wicked. 
And now what does he say? You know what? God, if I've got you, it's enough. I mean, this is a huge transformation, isn't it? This is huge. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. Well, before it was his desire of things that drove him into darkness, right? And now he gets to the, now he's to the point, has he gotten stuff? We don't know. It doesn't matter, right? Because now he's saying, you're with me and I've got you and that is enough. The person who has everything in the world and has Jesus has no more than the person who has nothing in this world and has Jesus. If you don't believe that, then you don't know what he's talking about. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What does it mean to say that God is my portion? It means that all the prosperity of the wicked is no longer a portion for him. It no longer holds any weight for him. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. What did he want to be as good earlier? All the prosperity, right? The the death without suffering. He thought, I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have that. So I don't have good. And now what does he say? Has any of that changed? None of it's changed. Right? None of it's changed. But now he's saying, oh. I see that man doesn't live by bread alone. But you are the source. You are the living water. You are the source of life. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all his works. Earlier I told you about Jerry Sitzert's book chronicling his suffering from the tragic death of his wife, his mother, and his daughter. I didn't tell you the title of the book. The title of the book a grace disguised. It reminds me of the Sheldon Vonnegut book, A Severe Mercy. We don't want hard grace, do we? Who wants grace to be hard? Who wants it to be tough and, and ruthless? But there are times when mercy and grace is that. I, I think the most difficult experience a Christian can have is when in the midst of suffering, we do not understand. We do not know what God is doing. We are confused and we can't tell what God is up. That is the worst thing to go through. When you're suffering and it's pointless and, and, and God, God is using a calculus that you've never taken and you can't decipher and you can't figure it. When everything we thought we knew blows up. And it's impossible to discern clearly what God is up to. So much suffering and so much mystery. What I like about Psalm 73 with this condensation of this long and painful journey is that we see that suffering is graced. Suffering is graced. It is full of grace relentless grace. And when you're suffering and you don't know what in the world God is doing or when it will end or how it will work out or how it will ever make any sense, when you realize, like me in that moment in the shower, that there is a darkness from which I have no control over, 
when you are absolutely out of control, you can know that God is at work. That God is working in you deeply. And he is working in you graciously. And you can cling to that, even if it's only with your fingernails. Cling to that. That if it's the silence of God's absence that I am suffering from, then God is even in that silence working in my life. See, that's the hardest thing. That's faith. That's faith. That's, that's the passage, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things, what? Unseen. That's faith. I've talked a lot about the absence of God, but the point is that some, it, it's, it, God is not absent in these moments. He's absent in a thousand ways, but he's present in a far more important way. He's present in a deep work. See, that's the real purpose and grace of the dark night of the soul. It's the tough work of God. See, I think it's in these moments in the darkest, right? When God is shining his light the most keenly. We call that a laser. Don't we? Yeah. It cuts, huh? I mean, on the cross, what do you see? You see darkness, don't you? Utter darkness. But there's a light there, isn't there? And you know what happens? In these moments of suffering, you know what God is doing? He's going for the jugular. He's putting his finger on the thing that Asaph protected and hid, and guarded, and cherished above all else. He did it to Job. Read Job carefully. He got his meaning from his family, and his reputation, and his health, and his possessions, and God put his finger on it. And Abraham got his meaning from his son, and God said, give it to me. Can you imagine the loneliness of Abraham's walk to Mount Moriah? When God said that. See, God goes for the jugular sometimes. And with Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, who lived in the life of the mind, God put his finger right there. You see, what happens in these moments is often our worst nightmare because it's our greatest idol. Because God is putting his finger precisely on the thing that needs the deepest attention. And for all of these guys, for Job, for Kohelet, for Asaph, the healing at the end, I mean, you just, you heard it in Asaph's prayer. It's a real depth healing. I mean, it's a healing deep inside. All of a sudden, he's saying stuff. I mean, I've sat with people as a pastor and tried to get them to this moment where they can say, the Lord is my portion because their wife has just totally abandoned them. And to see God doing that to someone, to see God leading someone, to look to him as, uh, to, for him alone to be their portion, it's devastating. Like Mother Teresa She surrenders fully to Christ. 
Remember, I read you the quote. Christ said, will you not give this to me too? If you and I give Christ full freedom to transform us, then make no mistake, his scalpel must cut deep. This is the story of Edmund in the line, in the line of which, in the um, voyage of the Dawn Treader, when he turns into the dragon. And Aslan offers to free him, right? And the first cuts. So how, how, how do we do this? How, how do we suffer well? How can we suffer in such a way that this type of depth healing occurs? Well, there's no answer to that question. <laughs> right? There's no recipe. I mean, that book's not in the Bible. Instead, we just get these glimpses. Asaph, and did you know, by the way, that of the 150 Psalms, more than half of them are Psalms of pain and questioning? More than half. And then you've got Ecclesiastes and Lamentations and Job. And all of these, what are they? They are portraits of people who've walked through pain and suffering. How do we do this? There is no recipe. So what do you do then when there's no recipe? You do what Asaph did. I hinted at it earlier. You do what Job did. You do what Kohelet did. You walk straight into the middle of the maelstrom. You don't run from it. You don't cover it up. You surrender to the severe mercy of God. You embrace the cross. You surrender to the journey of your pain and your struggle and you wade your way through it. You crawl through it. You wait through it. Whatever it takes. And when I say you wait, I'm not saying it's a passive thing. The kind of waiting I'm talking about is not passive. Listen to what Joseph Sit- Jerry Sitzer said. He said, since I knew that darkness was inevitable and unavoidable, I decided from that point on to walk into the darkness rather than try to outrun it. To let my experience of loss take me on a journey wherever it would lead and to allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think I could somehow overcome it or avoid it. I I chose to turn toward the pain, however falteringly, and to yield to the loss, though I had no idea at the time what it would mean. Now, let me just wrap this up by showing you how this works out when it comes to doubt. Because some of you, um, you've not suffered physically, but like Kohelet and Ecclesiastes, it's, more, it's an existential suffering. It's a doubt suffering. What do you do? Well, you embrace the doubts. See, that's what it means. It means doubt is not the enemy of faith. It means doubt is not a vice. For some Christians, a life, when you read the history of Christianity, there are some Christians for whom a life of doubt is a holy vocation. Mother Teresa. That was her calling. Seasons of sustained doubt where you have serious reservations about the truth of the faith can be so painful, but don't run from them. 
This is what Asaph did. He didn't run from it. This is what Job did. He did not 41 chapters of screeching and complaining and struggling. Sometimes walking in faith, we walk with tears streaming down our faith, our face. But we keep walking. Doubts may develop like Joseph Sitzer because of one huge catastrophe, right? Or Job. Or they might be for you more a slow and steady accretion. Like a stalagmite. Right? Just building up over time. This comment, that comment. This person you respect, that person you respect. Slowly it just seeps into you. And at first, when you have these doubts, you try to push them aside. Maybe they'll go away before God's, God notices, but they don't. And this is terrifying, if you've ever been there. You feel your faith slipping away. And it's unsettling, and it's disorienting, and it's frightening to watch that happen. You doubt that God cares. You doubt that He's listening. You doubt that He's even aware of who you are. And you begin to doubt that He exists, and it scares you to death. And so like Asaph, maybe, you're living a life of quiet desperation, afraid to speak up, afraid to even give voice to these doubts. It it is so frightening for a Christian to, to look at their life and to see that they are leaving God behind. What do we do in these moments? What I'm saying is that when you're suffering doubts, don't run from them. Walk right into them. Don't fight them. Don't think of them as the enemy. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Faith presupposes doubt. Faith is about confidence. It's not about certainty. Certainty and faith are more opposite than faith and doubt. What what I'm saying is that when it comes to doubt, you pass through it. Patiently and honestly and courageously. And when you're in doubt, you are in a period of transformation. It is a severe mercy. It is a gift. Welcome it as a gift. I know that's hard to do when the universe is falling down around you, but in the darkness of your suffering, in f- with, with a mustard seed of faith, Right? That's all it takes, right? Just a mustard seed. Just with your fingernails clawed into the cliff. Hold on in faith. Trust that God is calling to you. And when you're stripped of everything else, all you can do is surrender and trust. It's a severe mercy, it's a disguised grace, but it is a mercy. And it is a grace. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?